Hi everyone, welcome to Into the Archives. While our main sermon podcast, uh, Words from the Wildwood, can be found on Sunday mornings, this is more of a retrospective, a looking back at where I have been, where I preached, what I've had the opportunity to do, and the observations I've made along the way. I hope that you can look back with me at many of these sermons that have come. Some may sound a little dated, but you might be impressed to hear things that were going on then that are still going on today. I hope you enjoy this offering from the archives. When all seems lost, call on him. How many of us have, have stood in a hospital room or laid in a hospital bed and thought all was lost? How many people in this room have faced cancer surgery, specifically cancer surgery, the great C word of our generation, the word that scares everybody. Everybody's frightened of cancer. Today they had a report on the news. Cell phones will give you cancer. Don't put them next to your body. Don't put them next to your head. Keep them, you know, this far away so they're totally useless. Even the little earpieces you use, that's going to give you brain cancer. Here's the thing. Am I afraid of a cell phone? No. You know why? Because God wrote down before eternity began the day of my birth. And he will and has written down the day of my death. When the day of my death comes, can anything a doctor can do save me? No. Can anything I do by worrying save me? No. Because God is going to take me when God's going to take me. All I have to do is live every day he gives me to the absolute fullest. So that when I pass from this earth, I do so with no regrets. Having left nothing unsaid and no work undone. Amen? Amen. Look at this tonight. God doesn't play games. When all seems lost, you need to call on him. Because God is a God who is serious about his plans and about his people. Deuteronomy 4, 23 through 27. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and you will be left few in numbers among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And that's a harsh way to start a speech, isn't it? I mean, everything Moses has said so far has been harsh because he is trying to get it through the minds of the Israelites that this is serious. This is serious business. God is not going to play with you. You are about to receive the inheritance that your fathers didn't get because they disrespected and disobeyed God. How many of us are really, really fearful that if we disrespect or disobey God, God is going to do something to us. I would say that 99% of people in our churches in America today do not believe God will do anything to people who are disobedient. But I'll tell you what God does do to people who are disobedient. He removes from them the one thing that you cannot beg, borrow, or steal. Peace. His peace. 
his abiding peace. When you are walking in disobedience, you will have no peace. You will worry. You will not be able to sleep at night. Your stomach will twist up into knots. Your blood pressure will go up. Your diabetic blood sugar will go up. You will not enjoy anything that you are doing when you're walking in disobedience. Take a look at this. Verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God and make a carved image that the Lord your God has forbidden you. Okay, that's simple. Right on back to the Ten Commandments. They are forbidden from carving the image. Why? We looked at it last week. When God appeared on Mount Sinai, did he appear in the image of an eagle? No. Did he appear in the image of a man on Mount Sinai? No. Was he a golden calf? Was he a sparkling sunset? Did God appear in any image when he revealed himself to his people? No. And the scripture says, because God gave you no image, do not make any image of him and worship him. And why is that so important? Because every pagan nation has always made God to look like them. The Egyptians were the worst. They always gave a man or woman's body to their gods and then used the head of an animal to represent some characteristic of that creature. And that was their god. Like them, but a little bit different. More terrifying. God does not have a physical form that we can look upon. Unless, you know, unless you're a Mormon, then God looks a whole lot like, you know, Mike. You know, except with longer beard and more hair. You know, just, yeah. But fortunately for us, we know the truth. God doesn't look like anything we've ever seen. In fact, nobody has seen God's face and what? Lived. That's right. So take care. Be warned lest you forget the covenant that the Lord your God made with you. Who? Through whom? Through Abraham. God made this covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. You will prosper on the earth. I will walk with you. Look at verse 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. I love this verse. Our God is a consuming fire. Now you know what that means? That is not the image of a campfire. That's not the image of something that you roast marshmallows around. This means a ravenous burning inferno which totally devours everything and anything which comes close to it. What did the Egyptians see when they came after the Israelites? The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, Nobody even tried to go through the pillar of fire because it blocked the way at the Wadi Watir as they went down to the beach at Nueva. That pillar of fire would have utterly annihilated anything that came close. That is what Satan knows about each and every one of you. If he comes after you, he has to go through the ravenous, consuming fire. Isn't that great to know? God has put a pillar of fire about you. Nothing can touch you. Not cancer, not financial difficulties. Nothing can touch you that God has not allowed for his reasons, for his purposes. There are no accidents. There are no whoopsies in the universe. It doesn't just happen. There's a purpose and a plan for everything God either does or allows. You understand that, church? Now, I know that half of you disagree with me because I've had this fight with you already. I'm not changing. You know why I'm not changing? God's word doesn't change. It's the Lord. So our God is a consuming fire. But now understand this. The fire that protects you will also consume you. Because God expects you to be what? A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to him. That means you got to lay yourself on that altar. God applies to you his flame. You are utterly annihilated 
All that is left is what God recreates for his purpose, for his use. What good is a sacrifice that won't lay down the altar? No good at all. That's why you kill them. That's why you kill the sheep. That's why you kill the oxen. No animal is going to let itself be burned alive. Here's the thing. You are not an oxen and you are not a sheep. God expects you to lay down and die. He expects you to lay down and allow him to burn you thoroughly and consume you that you might be totally his. That's a love that is amazing in its strength, but terrifying in its implications. God doesn't play. He has given you his son. He has given you his Holy Spirit to indwell you. He has very high expectations of you. It's not you giving your best to God. It's you give your every living, breathing moment to God. Then God takes it and totally overwhelms you and uses you in ways you can't imagine. Have you ever gone to witness to somebody and you had words that you didn't know? You came up with scriptures that you can't remember memorizing. You came up with examples that just burst through their wall of doubt. And you're going, Lord, where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from a dead man through whom God spoke. That's where it comes from. The consuming fire wants to completely take you. Because that's what God is. He doesn't take half or part. He takes all of us. Look at the rest of it. Verse 26. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from that land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. If you disobey God... He says, if, if you go in there and you bring idolatry into that land after God cleans it, after God purifies it, after he gives it to you, if you pollute your marriage, if you pollute your relationship with your children, if you pollute your responsibilities at church, in a cell group, as a deacon, anything, you pollute that and God will remove you from that position of influence and that position of authority. He will remove you from all those things that you have taken wrongly. And that's what I love about this. Because God says, I'm giving you the land. Go live there, honey. But you screw it up and I will kick you to the curb. I will throw you out in among the nations and you will be like a bad memory. At one point, God wanted to kill the people of Israel. They were so lousy. He said, Moses, I love you, brother, but get out the way. Let me kill these people and I will raise up a nation from you. Moses is like, Lord, come on, calm down. It's okay. Give them another chance. Of course, God knew what he was going to do anyways, but he, he needed Moses to step up and be a man and, and you know, stand in the gap for Israel. And he did that. And he says in 27, And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. Here is a prophecy. If you, for those of you who love prophecies, here's a prophecy that's fulfilled twice. Not once, but twice. Remember, all prophecies have a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment. When Israel disobeyed, when they went amok after the death of Solomon, actually they started under Solomon, but after Solomon with his son, when they went wrong, what happened? A guy named Nebuchadnezzar came along and took them into captivity. And they were scattered among the nations, and they were thrown out as kindling the diaspora, the scattering out. You know what's amazing about that word diaspora? Diaspora has as its meaning, God has cast them asunder. So if you ever see somebody talking about diaspora, it means that God has done something to spread them to the four winds for his purposes. And his purpose was that they might be shamed and that they might be drawn back together later. He does that. He brings them back much later under Zerubbabel. But then again, in 70 AD, Israel again sinks to the bottom of the barrel. They're foul. They're disgusting. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping Tammuz. And God again annihilates his house, and it's annihilated to this day, and he spreads his people to the four winds, 
until he brought them back together in the rebirth of Israel, which of course begins the prophetic timeline until a second coming. So you have an important prophecy. If you disrespect God, if you bring idolatry into the land, if you pollute the house, God will blow you to the four winds. You will disappear until the day he brings you back. Look at verse 28. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. This is so, so important, church. Notice what happens when we disrespect God. When we disrespect God, he gives us to what? He gives us to the false gods that we place in his stead. Notice this. They are gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands. Many of the prophets talk about this. Now they cannot see, so they cannot see your need. These gods you worship, this, this God you create on paper or in your own mat, he can't see your needs. Worse, he can't hear your prayers. This false God cannot hear when you mumble his name, when you sit there and repeat the same stupid words again and again and again. He can't hear because he's not real. He's a hunk of wood. He's a piece of stone. When I was in Thailand, I saw the reclining Buddha. Beautiful, beautiful mammoth Buddha laying on its side, the little sleepy eyes and the little toes sticking out. Gorgeous statue. And it's surrounded by all these little stone Buddhas. And they go out there and they dress the little stone Buddhas in all the little robes. And they change the robes for the different festivals. And they throw flowers out. And you're going, that's a lot of work for a rock. And for a piece of stone. And for some beaten gold. Because it can't see you when you come to see it. It can't hear you when you pray to it. It can't eat the food you lay before it, and it can't smell the incense you burn to it. It is vanity, it's vain religion. And that is what God will give you up to if you will not stay faithful to the God who has revealed himself to you. You understand, when all seems lost, you have to call upon him. But first understand this, God doesn't play. When you come to God, you come on His terms, by His standards, through His chosen methods. Not every road leads to God. There is only one path, and His name is what? Jesus Christ. we got to get that straight. There's a lot of churches in America that don't believe that. They believe good works will get you to heaven. And they believe that kind intentions will get you to heaven. And they believe that giving to the poor will get you to heaven. i got news for you. All that stuff is nice. But you know what? When you're dead, you still go to hell. Because without Christ, you have no hope. God doesn't play. And he told him that. You're going into the land that I gave you. Don't you mess it up. Because if you do, I will mess you up next. All right. Look at this. Deuteronomy 4, 28 through 38. Now, God doesn't play games. But you know what? God is merciful. See, here's the thing, church. The gospel is always two sides of the same coin. It is mercy. It is justice. It is vengeance. It is grace. If you don't have vengeance, you don't have grace. Because if you're not going to lose something, if you're not in danger of eternal hell, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. You get it, church? When your friends say, why do I need a savior? You say, because you are going to hell, my friend. And you're going to hell because you've offended a holy God. And you've offended a holy God because you've disrespected his word and what he has shown you. And you know what? The vast majority of people know that they have disregarded God. They know they've pushed him to a corner. They know they've shoved him to one day a week or one hour a week. They know it. But look what it says here. 
Deuteronomy 4, 28-38. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Very important. Remember that? But from there, from that place where your gods can't see or hear, from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the days that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard it and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord your God, that Yahweh your God, there is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourself to bring you in to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Man, that is extensive. I love it. This shows you God's mercy. Verse 29. But from there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. There's that consuming fire. God doesn't want just your prayers. He doesn't want just your offerings. He wants every second of your life, every minute of your day, every decision that you make. He wants all of it. Now, how many of you, without raising your hands, but you can do it in your brain, how many of you think that's too much to ask? I can't give that much. I'm not strong enough to give God all of my life. Why does he want everything? What about the five minutes for me? I mean, this is 2010. What about me time? When's my time? Doesn't God leave me a little something? Let me answer your question. No, he leaves you nothing. Because what you had before was wood, hay, stubble, and junk. What you would have if he gave it to you was wood, hay, stubble, and junk. What you give him through his power, by his leading, is gold, silver, and precious stones. That's what it comes down to. Look at verse 30. When you are in tribulation, the word means temptation or a tight spot. When you come into a temptation, when you come into that tight spot, when you don't know what to do, when you don't have money for a doctor, you don't have money to pay the bills, when the doctor says, cancer, you're going to die. That's tribulation. That's a tight spot. When you are in tribulation and all of these things come upon you in the latter days, twofold prophecy. Latter days has two meanings. The first of that is later in the future. The second meaning is in the very last of days. Yes, Israel encountered all of this in the future under Nebuchadnezzar. But they will again encounter it in the last days under the Antichrist as he tries to destroy the last remnant of God's people, which is Israel. 
Understand, when we're gone, God's attention turns to Israel. But as God's attention turns to Israel, sweetheart, so does Satan's. And Satan has only one desire. He's tried it many times through history. Exterminate the people of God that God might be shown a liar. Because God said, my people will persist to the end till I come for them. There will always be a remnant. That's what his word says. Israel will make it to the end when all of us are gone. All the other nations are under the Antichrist. Israel's going to keep plugging along because God will get his glory. Amen? That's what it says right there. When you are in tribulation, all these things come upon you in the latter days. You will return to Yahweh your God and you will obey his voice. We know that comes at the end. 144,000 chosen witnesses. The two witnesses at the Wailing Wall. We know that's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. But you say, aha, pastor, what about under Nebuchadnezzar? Where were those people that persisted? Where were the voices then? Where were the ones who returned to God? I'll tell you where they were. Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, David, and everybody else with them. All the ones whose names you don't hear in the scriptures, they were still faithful to God under Nebuchadnezzar. We just happen to have four brothers who stood out and above who became the symbols of what it meant to be obedient to God. Look at verse 31. For Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Understand that. He made a promise to Abraham. Some people said yes, but it was a two-way promise. God and Abraham did this uh, ritual together where they went through the divided animal. No, he didn't. What happened to Abraham on the night of the covenant? All you that stayed awake in Sunday school. God put him asleep. Why? Because then the fire of God's holiness passed through the covenant. How? Alone. With whom did God make a covenant? With himself. God made a covenant with himself, not dependent upon Abraham, not dependent upon his faithfulness. In the Old Testament world, two men made a covenant. If one man broke it, the other man was free to disregard it. Here's the thing. God made a promise with himself. Has God ever broken a promise to himself? Uh-uh. So everything he promised Abraham holds to this day. The chosen holy people of God is still Israel. Don't ever get that wrong. We are the wild olives grafted in. But our life comes through Israel and always will. That's important for you to remember because the world wants to change that and say the church is now the chosen people. Anyone that says that is a liar and you need to walk away from them because they don't know the word of God at all. Forget the covenant that he swore to your fathers, that he swore to them. That remnant will remain. But go on. Look what it says right here in verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard it and still live? That's it. No man has seen the face of God and lived, but they sure heard his voice. It scared him so bad. What they say to Moses? Moses, don't let God talk to us again. We'll die. You know why they would die? Because if I say to my daughter, your mother wants you to do this, she can go, hmm, dad and mom haven't been talking much lately. Maybe dad's pulling a trick on me and mom really didn't say it. Okay? So she disregards my words because it's not mom's word. But if mom says, daughter, go do this now, what's she going to do? Do it or get whooped. That's it. You see, if Moses says God says, then they can disregard Moses because they didn't disregard God. When God says it, you have to do it because you heard God say it yourself. It kind of removes the fudging around room, right? That's what this is all about. He reminds them, you heard God's word. You might have been 10. You might have been 11, but you were there with the people. You heard the words. You heard God lay down his laws. You have to obey because you don't have an excuse. You were there. He goes on. 
Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself out of the midst of another nation, which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? The Exodus, the single most important event in the life history of Israel. The most important event, the thing that makes them a people, is the Exodus. Because God gathers them together out of slavery. He leads them out, and from that day on, they are his people. They go to his mountain. He speaks to them. He gives them his law. They are his chosen possession, and they will carry his word to the world. That's the most important day in Hebrew history. That's where it all begins. That's why he keeps bringing them back there. The most important day for any of us is the day that we were saved. The day we said, Lord, save me. Because when you say, save me, what you're saying is, Lord, kill me. Lay me down as a sacrifice. Kill the old man. Kill the sinner. Kill the disobedient one. And raise me up like your son Jesus to be your servant. See, that's what we need to explain to people. It's like getting married. You don't get married and go on a date that night with somebody else. Unless you want to die. Same thing with God. You don't come to God, ask him to save you, and then go over to the Baha'i church, or go over to the Mormon church, or go over somewhere else where they're going to give you another guy that you can play around with because your God's too strict. See what I mean? It's really important that we get this. Verse 35. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides him. Very important. There is no other true God. There is no one to worship because God is the only God who's ever appeared to them, spoken to them, shown them the fire by night and the cloud by day. Have you ever done anything that makes you believe in any way, shape, or form that any other religion on the earth is in any way, shape, or form valid? No. I studied Buddhism to see if it was real. You know what? It's not. I've looked at Islam. Interesting, but not. I've looked at Mormonism. Definitely not. Looked at a few other religions. Not, not, not. I always come back to Christ. If you look seriously at the person of Jesus Christ, you study the prophecies, you look at the word, there is no way you will not know that he is God and that he is the only God and the only salvation for mankind. There's no way you're not going to know that. It says this, okay, also, and on the earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And then finally in verse 38, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than yourselves to bring you and to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. They had just cleaned house on Sihon and Og and he was laying before them all the kingdoms of the Canaanites and he is about to wipe them out. He is going to go before them like a tide and he is going to mow them down and he is going to give them a land and he is saying I am going to do this. So have you ever seen a God that would do this for his people? Bring them out of slavery and give them another land, a land they didn't work for, vineyards they didn't plant, offenses they didn't build, uh, herds of cattle that they didn't raise? Has anyone ever seen such a thing on the earth? The answer is no. It is the one thing that stands out about Christianity. Is God is an outstandingly merciful, amazing God. To take people who were poor, broken, refuse, the bottom of the heap, and he elevated them to be his priests, his people, his sons and his daughters. That's what's so amazing about it. But let's finish it up tonight. So God doesn't play games when it comes to his way of doing things. It's his way or the highway. But God is merciful. Even when we mess up, even when we're disobedient, God is merciful. They went into Egypt because they were disobedient and God ransomed them out on the very day he said he would. He told them, you're going to be in bondage for 400 years and then I'm going to pull you out. They were in a bondage 400 years. God pulled them out. They went into Babylonian captivity 
For 70 years, God pulled them out, put them back in the land. They disappeared from the earth for almost 2,000 years. And a single solitary act of a sovereign God brought them back into existence. Because when the UN wrote the charter for the land of Palestine, it was called the land of Palestine. It was one stroke of a pen from a man that learned in Sunday school that this is not called Palestine. This is called Israel. That stroke of an American president's pen brought Israel back into existence. And it would only happen because he knew that the word of God said, this is the people of Israel. And he gave them back their identity. He gave them back their land. And now we are poised for the culmination of that story. We've already been through Revelation, so we know what it is. All right, finally at the end. Deuteronomy 4, 39 and 40. Because of all this, we should serve God faithfully. Amen? Serve God faithfully. Here's what it says. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Yahweh is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath. There is no other God. Period. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving for you for all time. That is so important. We as a nation stand at a turning point. We as a nation stand at a point where we choose the God that we serve. We either serve the God who was set down in the Constitution, the God who was set down clearly by the Founding Fathers, set down by the Bibles that were distributed to every person who came into this country in that first hundred years. We either are going to serve the God of the Bible or we're going to serve this new God. And the new God's name is practicality. It's called... Um, globalism. We're going to be global citizens. If you're going to be a global citizen, you have to accept all gods, all religions, all deities, all ways of life. You know what I say? Bah humbug! Call me Ebenezer Scrooge. There's only one God, and I will worship no other. They can kill me, but they can't change me. This is what it says right here. Deuteronomy 4.39, know therefore today and lay it to your heart. Apply it as it were, as you would stick wallpaper to a wall or as you would, you would nail a board to another board. Drive the nail into your heart so that it never moves. That the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other God, period. James 1 says this, James 1, 21, 22. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, the word of God, which is able to save your souls. How does it do that? By showing us who Jesus Christ is. James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The Jews deceived themselves. They received the words of Moses. They received everything on the day they crossed the Jordan. But as soon as they got past the very first city, they got past Jericho, okay? Somebody snatched up all this stuff that God said, don't touch. And right after their greatest victory, they suffered one of their first great defeats. See, they were hearers of the word, but they were not doers of it. And we're pretty good at that in the modern church. The modern church is good at listening to the word of God. It's really good at amening the word of God. But we really stink at doing the word of God. Oh, but Lord, that's too hard. Oh, Lord, that's kind of harsh. I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't hold up that standard. That's too much. That takes a man to do that. Guess what, baby? God called us to be men. Unless, of course, you're women. Then he called you to be women. 
I don't want to leave you all out over there. Okay. The thing is this. It takes somebody who is fully convinced in his heart that God's word is irrevocable. It does not change. It cannot be modified. It cannot be, you know, we can't vote for some constitutional reassignment of God's word and put clauses in to make it easy on us. If we're going to be God's people, we got to hold it to the letter. There's one God, his standards trump everybody else's. But now consider this. How does this change your life? The end point of every sermon should be this. What do I do now about what I just heard? Right? We're going to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen? Amen. So how are you going to do this word? Let me give you a couple examples. One, right here. Look at your experience with the Lord Jesus. What have you seen and heard? Give you a couple quick verses here. Luke 7, 20-22. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. All of these were signs of the Messiah. These were signs of the Messiah. These were not people's opinions. These were not people's feelings. It didn't make them feel good. It didn't help them sleep at night. He said, go tell them what you have seen and heard. Because these are the fulfillments of Isaiah's prophecies. Jesus said, you know what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. Go tell them that I've said it and I've done it. Amen? When the world says, why are you a Christian? Why are you a born-again fanatical follower of Jesus Christ? Because this is what I've seen. This is what I've heard. We've talked about that before. But it's so important. Your testimony is critical, critical to your life as a minister in Jesus Christ. Two, does your life reflect that experience? Have you been changed from before you accepted him as your Lord and God? Has your life changed? Have you seen anything in your life that has manifested any kind of difference? I'll tell you what changes right here. Acts 4, 19 and 20. Peter and John got hauled into the Sanhedrin. The ordained deacons of the church was going to bust up on them because they were saying things that the chief priest didn't like. And they were doing things that the chief priest didn't like. It went against the rules. I like this. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Someday you are going to be called to stand up and to your hurt, admit what you have seen and heard of Jesus Christ. And you better be ready to stand up in that day. You better be ready to stand up and lose your job, lose your freedom, lose whatever it is they're threatening to take away from you. You better stand up and say, I have seen the power of God. I have experienced it. I have been changed. This is what I was. This is what I am right now. Finally, what idols do you have in your life that you need to get rid of tonight? Only you can answer that. Maybe one of the biggest idols in our church is fear. We're afraid. I don't know what we're afraid of. I mean, seriously, what are we afraid of? What can men do to us? Maybe that isn't our fear. What can women do to us? Let's not go there tonight. Okay. We walk in fear that somebody is going to say something about what we say and do. Let's be honest. We're afraid that somebody will make a comment about us. Good. They made lots of comments about Jesus. He upset people. I'm just walking in the master's footsteps. Peter and John upset people. They were walking in the master's footsteps too. Maybe at the right time in the right place, y'all need to upset some people. At work, business, school, 
You need to upset people by being more than just a Sunday morning Christian. You need to be lit up for Jesus Christ. Totally unswervable. Because you know what? God's got standards. He will always come to the defense of his people. But if you mess around and put idols in his place, false Jesuses, false gods, false teachers, false doctrines, then God will let you serve your false teachers, your false idols, and your false doctrines. It may not cost you your soul, but it will cost you your peace, it will cost you your marriage, it will cost you your children, it will cost you your sanity because you know it's wrong and you're living a lie. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today to listening to our programs. We appreciate your attention. We present this for you as a way of building up God's people, giving you hope in these dark days. They are presented to you commercial free. We don't solicit money from any companies, Bible organizations, or churches. We put it out there because we believe wholeheartedly that the Word of God is the only hope this country or any country could have. Because we present it to you commercial free, we do ask you to search your heart. If you feel the need to support us in any way, it, it, could be a, it could be a love offering, a gift, send me enough for a cup of coffee. I'd really appreciate it. You can send all support to Richard Stidham, S-T-I-D-H-A-M, Richard Stidham at Box 1321. Baytown, Texas, 77521, and everything you send to us will be used to keep this podcast on the air. Have a great day. God bless, and remember, keep looking up. Our salvation is drawing near.